Hi everyone, it's Adam White, director of the Gray Center. We're recording this in late June of 2020, and obviously this is a very challenging time, a time when local communities and the nation at large are grappling with how, when, and whether to reopen various local businesses. Obviously this raises a variety of issues, both legal, scientific, and prudential. One of the issues that's arisen in debates in the last few months is the question of liability, the question of who's liable when somebody, either an employee or a customer, thinks they caught COVID-19 uh, at a store or at the workplace. This is the COVID-19 liability question, and it's extremely complicated because it wraps up both federal, state, and local issues, and also tort law, the law that's made uh, in court uh, when one person is alleged to have injured another. So on June 18th of 2020, the Gray Center co-hosted an event with George Mason's Law and Economics Center on this question of tort liability for businesses during COVID-19. I was one of the speakers, along with David Rivkin, a partner at Baker and Hostetler, and Professor Timothy Litton of Georgia State University. The conversation was moderated by a new colleague, Donald, Donald Cochin. He's uh, an incoming professor of law here at the Scalia Law School, and he's also the newly appointed Deputy Executive Director of the Law and Economics Center. So it was a real pleasure for me to get to participate in this event, and I learned a lot from the other panelists. So we thought it would be helpful to put this out on our own podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn from it. And if you have any thoughts or reactions, email them to me. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to today's webinar, a discussion on tort liability for businesses during COVID-19, co-sponsored by two centers at the George Mason University Scalia Law School, the Law and Economics Center, and the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Donald Koshin, and I'm an incoming professor of law at Scalia Law School and the incoming deputy executive director of the Law and Economics Center. I'll be moderating today's timely discussion. This webinar addresses several questions, including what types of limitations, if any, should be placed on the liability of businesses for COVID-19-related injuries to their employees, customers, and the general public? Are limitations on business liability necessary to incentivize businesses to open up? Or do traditional rules of tort liability need to be maintained or perhaps even duties enhanced in order to incentivize businesses to take prudent precautionary measures? How can individuals interacting with businesses be more certain about what level of care they should expect from businesses? Is a uniform or federal standard for COVID-19-related tort liability necessary in order to create predictability and manage risk? Or should states be encouraged to experiment with divergent policies? Should businesses be required to prove that they have put in place certain safeguards against COVID-19 transmission before being eligible for legislative protections from tort liability? There will be disagreement among the panelists on where to set the standards to motivate the optimal behavior, but I think there will be a great deal of agreement that incentives matter and how and where you set the legal standards can create different kinds of incentives to motivate different kinds of behavior. Aside from being a real and pressing matter of the day with present consequences for how we regulate behavior, the subject serves as a useful case study in the role of incentives more generally, including how the way we set legal rules regarding liability can incentivize, deter, motivate, or otherwise affect human behavior. It also demonstrates the role of predictability and certainty in legal rules. Assessing risk is hard to do when the regulatory climate, civil or administrative, is highly unpredictable. Judges and legislatures can be very helpful when they broadcast legal expectations with clarity. We have three distinguished panelists, each of whom has been studying and writing on these issues to engage in today's discussion. So that we can reserve time for substantive discussion, I will not give extensive bios. They all have impressive backgrounds and have developed extensive expertise on issues we will discuss and I recommend that you click on their complete profiles by clicking on their name at the website that houses this webinar link. Our first panelist will be Timothy Litton, the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and Distinguished University Professor and Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. Next up will be Adam J. White, Assistant Professor of Law and Executive Director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at Scalia Law School at George Mason University. And finally, will be David B. Rifkin, Jr., a partner at Baker Hostetler. Each panelist will speak for eight minutes, and then we'll have some intra-panel discussion followed by audience Q&A. With that, I turn it over to Professor Litton. I want to address my remarks primarily to the liability exposure that's currently faced by businesses opening with regard to their patrons 
and leave aside perhaps for the discussion some discussion about employers and possible claims by employees in terms of COVID transmission. I want to just start with the basic premise that liability exposure provides an important incentive to exercise reasonable care with regard to reopening your business. There's a lot of economic pressure now that businesses are feeling uh, opening up in the face of many months of being shut down. Uh, and in most cases, I think, and, uh, both those businesses are opening with an eye towards the safety of their patrons and customers. I think your average business owner, especially here in Georgia, uh, has an eye towards safety and is trying to do the right thing and is monitoring the latest advice. But I do think that there are certain economic pressures that sometimes lead businesses to cut corners on safety features and to perhaps shortchange some of the things that they ought to be doing for their customers. Negligence liability for COVID-19 transmission gives them an important incentive to try and exercise reasonable care. And reasonable care, I think, provides a flexible but relatively obtainable standard. And the way to figure out what reasonable care is is the way that most of these companies, liability insurers or risk managers will be thinking about. The first of those is to make sure that businesses use cost-effective precautions, things like using masks or social distancing where they are possible within the constraints of the business. Following government standards, keeping an eye on CDC guidance and keeping up with the latest news as to what it is that's necessary. This is an emerging situation. So to fix standards and a regulatory standard might not be the best way given that things are changing over time. Industry standards, keeping an eye on what other businesses in relevant industries are doing. If you're a restaurant, you wanna know what other restaurants in your area are doing and keep up with those standards. And finally, just common sense. What it is that a normal, ordinary, prudent person would do in order to try and mitigate the risk of COVID-19 transmission in your business, whether that's a health club or a restaurant that's reopening. I want to point out that there are very serious hurdles to the ability of plaintiffs to bring these claims. Uh, I think we're not likely to see many claims for COVID-19 transmission based on negligence. And the reason for that is threefold. First of all, it's going to be quite difficult to establish fault. I think most businesses, as I mentioned, are relatively careful. There is likely to be COVID transmission even when people use reasonable care. And on that basis, I wouldn't expect a lot of businesses to be subject to liability for fault. Second is causation. This is a very contagious disease. It's going to be very difficult, even with contract tracing advances, to try and locate the causal source of a person's contagion and whether or not they caught COVID-19 from a particular business. And finally, assumption of the risk. I think most people who go into restaurants or health clubs or other areas are well aware of the risks that they're likely to encounter, especially if they don't see social distancing or if they themselves are not wearing a mask where they see that the people serving them are not wearing masks. So we're likely to see either implied assumption of the risk or express waivers. We've started to see this more and more where businesses require patrons to sign a waiver before they come into the business waiving any possible liability. We're also likely to see insurance coverage disputes, which is likely also to slow down plaintiff's lawyers from filing these suits if there's not an insurance pocket at the end of some sort of judgment. There are exclusions for viruses, communicable diseases, and pollution. We're likely to see some litigation around whether or not those exclusions are enforceable and whether they cover COVID-19. This brings me, I think, to the important issue of immunity. There's been a lot of talk about the importance of government regulation from the point of view of granting immunity to businesses that reopen. And the first thing I would say about that is we've seen a lot of movement on this in the medical malpractice area and liability for facilities, uh, healthcare facilities like um, uh, elderly care facilities or nursing homes. And we started to see this come out through executive orders. Uh, so this is something we're likely to see more of. But I would claim that a lot of the talk about broad or sweeping immunity for businesses reopening like health clubs and restaurants is really unnecessary. It's based on a lot of claims about the fear of frivolous litigation, that even if these claims are going to be difficult to win, there are going to be a lot of them filed. Uh, the best available source I know of tracking complaints is the uh, database that's currently being kept by Hunt and Andrews Kurth called their COVID-19 Complaint Tracker. I believe it's based on courthouse news sources for filings in state and federal courts. And they've tracked so far since, uh, as of yesterday, since January 1st, 2,818 complaints filed related to COVID-19. Of those 2,818 claims filed in state and federal courts related to COVID-19, the tracker suggests that only one of them was for wrongful death in a personal injury case, other than for employment, consumer, or healthcare. Eight additional ones were for consumer personal injury for exposure to COVID-19. That's it. The rest of them are for insurance coverage disputes, there are 200 labor and employment disputes, and there are 512 disputes for civil uh, rights infringements for people who are litigating in the courts against the closure orders by governors. 
if there's a fear of a new wave of litigation, the primary fear ought to be the wave of litigation that's currently been unleashed against governors and state authorities for the closure, not frivolous tort suits. I think one of the dangers of pumping up the fear of frivolous lawsuits is it may actually create the need for uh, immunity legislation. That is, if businesses don't open because they fear, even if that fear is unfounded, litigation through frivolous lawsuits, then it's possible that in order to reassure them, it would be important to grant immunity legislation. That's a kind of bootstrapping argument where you create enough panic in order to create a problem that then needs to be solved by central control through legislation or administrative orders. I think that we don't have a very good track record in the employment context for OSHA coming in and inspecting or responding to complaints. I don't expect us to see a strong administrative record, especially places like I live in in Georgia, uh, for inspections and citations for restaurants and health clubs. I think liability exposure creates anxiety among businesses. It's understandable anxiety. If it didn't promote anxiety, then it wouldn't be an effective deterrent. And I think the fact that they're worried about it is good news, not only for the business community, which needs a long-term solution to reopening, stable reopening that's safe for patrons, but also for their patrons. And that anxiety is likely to lead both them and their insurers to making sure that businesses that reopen do it in a deliberative and careful way using cost-effective measures, following the latest government guidance, following industry standards and keeping abreast of what the local best practices are, and using plain old common sense. Uh, I think the last thing I would just mention about employment is, is that the employment problem, which I think Adam is going to discuss in some greater detail, um, involves the added difficulty of the idea of workers' compensation, whether or not workers' compensation actually would cover transmission of COVID-19 within employment context. And there are some questions about whether or not state workers' compensation plans actually cover uh, normal or average diseases that could be caught elsewhere. I know that California has addressed this problem through an executive order that says that there's a, there's a rebuttable presumption that a worker who contracts COVID-19 who has been forced to work during the shutdown order or the stay-at-home order has a presumption that that um, illness was caught uh, at the place of employment and it would be covered by workers' compensation. But again, I think I don't want to go too deeply into that area. The differences in terms of the standards and the role of workers' compensation is quite different. So I would just go back to reiterating that I think that Tort liability is not the only and maybe not even the most important, but it is an important instrument that we have available to us to regulate health and safety in a way that is decentralized, flexible, emerging as the knowledge base grows and advances and develops in this current crisis. And one that I think actually ultimately for careful businesses that reopen in this way that's deliberative poses very little threat of additional costs of business for opening. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to turn to Adam White next, but uh, before I do, I want to remind the audience of the place where you can send in comments. Please use the chat box, sending it to the host or to Aaron Murphy uh, on WebEx, or you can email ccjca at gmu.edu. So thank you very much, Tim, and uh, let's uh, turn it over to Adam. Well, thanks, Donald. Um, I want to thank my fellow panelists for participating in today's discussion on behalf of, of the, the aforementioned Gray Center. Uh, I want to thank the Law and Economics Center for, for organizing this and really doing all the, all the work on it. But I especially want to thank my, my latest colleague, uh, Professor Cochin. Uh, it's a real pleasure to get to work with him on this and, and all the other things we'll be working on uh, in, in the year ahead. I, I will touch a little bit on the employer-employee relationship uh, that was just alluded to. Um, I want to speak a little bit more broadly, though, in general, about the themes that have been raised by these issues. Um, and then I'll, I'll circle back at the end to some specifics. Um, for me, the organizing principle that's animated me on this issue from the very beginning, and I started raising red flags about the, the COVID-19 liability issues uh, in April. Um, at a very early stage. Um, the, my concerns have always been about this complicated relationship between employers, employees, uh, companies, and customers uh, that are so often uh, premised upon basic expectations and, and trust. Trust and expectations based on settled law, settled regulations, and just basic norms and expectations about who is responsible for what in our daily lives. It's the subject matter of everything we teach from regulation and administration, the tort, the contract, labor law, and so on. This COVID-19 experience 
among many other things, has been a fascinating case study in what happens when all of these expectations are unsettled by an extremely surprising event, whether you want to call it a black swan event or, or not, um, just a fundamentally different challenge to the order of our daily lives, um, as we've seen through all of the disruptions, to say nothing of the very real health and life and economic consequences of all of this. Um, the federal government obviously has already gotten deeply involved in this uh, through the, the relief efforts, the economic stimulus efforts, and so on, along with the federal government's uh, limited but important role in day-to-day -day, uh, public health and safety regulation within the states. Um, the federal government's now invested immense sums of money in trying to relieve economic harms and also to stimulate economic growth. And so the question, as I saw from the start was, what is the federal government's role in helping to ensure that the money that we're all investing now in economic reopening won't go to waste? Um, to make sure that all of us, uh, the, both the federal and state levels, are rowing in the same direction as much as possible. And one of the major collisions of the, in this is between, or the, or the disjunctions in this, is between the federal government's efforts now to, to reopen the economy and the need of states um, to, to, to both support economic growth, but at the same time protect public health. And in this case, the role of state courts, especially and federal courts as well, um, in, in deciding specific disputes between customers and companies, between employers and employees. As I said at the beginning, this is really a question about trust and how do you reinstill trust and expectations so that people can reopen the economy, they can walk into stores with a basic expectation about what kind of protection they're getting. Uh, as Professor Leighton said, we can't take for granted that companies will always do the right thing. I'd like to think that they act in goodwill and in good faith, but of course, we can't take it for granted. And at this challenging point in time, we don't necessarily know what the right thing is. And I'd quibble a little bit with Professor uh, Litton's uh, presentation at the end, and I'll get back to this at the end when I talk about negligence, but just ideas that you know companies should do the right thing based on best practices and ever-changing regulatory standards. I think it's asking a lot of companies in this blizzard of information we're all receiving, often conflicting, often changing information about what actually is the right thing. Um, I think the solution here, if the key is to get people to feel comfortable going to work, feel comfortable shopping, feel comfortable reopening their businesses, feel comfortable lending to businesses that want to reopen. For all of this, we need clear ex-ante standards um, so that at least people, again, customers, employees, and employers, all sort of know who is responsible for what in a very general sense. I don't think this can wait for after the fact litigation. Even if there's a low probability of success in negligence claims uh, and so on, what we're asking, what we need right now is clarity for the sake of reopening the economy. The kind of clarity that can only really be established through ex-ante regulations where the law specifies specifically what companies need to do at least specify as much as possible, reduce the sphere of uncertainty. And I think that's done through by creating safe harbors for employers, for companies, based on specific observable and accountable standards that can actually be implemented. Um, I think this requires legislation, not administration. I think this requires uh, state legislatures and Congress to actually identify and specify the behaviors they want to incentivize. Uh, and to require, sorry, not require, but instruct companies that if they do certain observable uh, activities uh, in terms of cleaning, monitoring, and so on, uh, that then they will be immune from liability, either at the state or federal level. I don't think we can do it through administration because there's just too many conflicting standards being administered by single issue or single mission oriented federal agencies. You look at the guidance coming out right now from OSHA versus the guidance coming out of EEOC. If I'm a company, I don't know based on those two sets of guidance what I can or should or must or must not do with respect to screening out uh, older employees, older customers who are uniquely at risk. I don't blame the agencies for promoting for producing guidance that's unclear or in conflict on these points. 
I think ultimately what we need is Congress and state legislatures to resolve these tensions and actually make decisions on what values to prioritize or not. And that process has to happen in a legislature where you have a better chance of, of legitimacy and compromise. Uh, balancing of values. I think it does require federal involvement. I wish the states could take the lead on this, and in some cases they have, but there's too much of, a, of an overhang of federal regulation. Efforts by states like Utah and others to legislate on this subject are going to bump up against the overhang of federal regulation on questions of, of, sort of OSHA regulation, occupational safety and health, uh, health privacy rules at the federal level, age discrimination and other discrimination law at the federal level. And even things like collective bargaining could be uh, implicated, both because worker situations are governed in part by collectively bargained agreements, but also because you'll have questions of what happens if employers start screening out from the workplace, uh, union leadership, and so on. So I think the federal government's going to have to get involved. I don't think negligence reform is enough. We've seen some, of, and I'll end on this point, we've seen this at the federal level, um, or sorry, at the state level in Utah, we've seen proposals at the federal level ideas of just eliminating the basic negligence standard and requiring uh, just a recklessness, a gross recklessness or malfeasance or an intentional tort standard. I don't think that works because we just don't know what constitutes ordinary negligence and what constitutes or reasonable care and what constitutes recklessness. We don't know because we've seen such a blizzard of ever-changing guidance documents from regulators and others. Um, even if negligence claims are rare, and I agree they're gonna be hard to prove, even if the claims themselves are rare, even if liability, success on the merits is rare, at the end of the day, that won't help us if what we need right now is ex ante certainty. And so I really think that reform needs to come from legislatures, not administrators, with at least some reform at the federal level. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, before we turn to our next panelist, I will remind you that if you have questions, they're coming in already, uh, but please, if you have questions, we'd love to hear them, and you can send them to the host or to Aaron Murphy in the chat uh, box, or you can email ccjca at gmu.edu. So next, I'll turn it over to David Rifkin. Thank you, Donald. Let me also say it's a pleasure to join you, and uh, I feel uh, <coughs> I feel certain anxiety being the only non-professor in this context, but I will do my best. There are some advantages in going last, and there are some disadvantages. One of them is uh, advantages is you hear presentations of panelists. The disadvantage is that if uh, uh, some of the points uh, I was going to make have already been made, particularly by Adam. But let me uh, let me try to add a little bit of value here. Let me say first, uh, I should confess, I'm I'm a big skeptic of. Uh, toward liability in general. So I, I bring certain biases to this and, uh, as a litigator and appellate lawyer in particular. So I I, I get to see uh, litigation uh, in, in this space. And uh, I, I would say that I, I, by and large, I don't think it's, it's helpful. Uh, now, how much, and I have to say, I'm somewhat fundamentally in disagreement with, uh, with, with Timothy. Uh, why is that? Well, first of all, if you look at the previous mass tort uh, waves of litigation, they often have come many years after the exposure uh, uh, or alleged exposure has occurred. So, uh, and I understand that that COVID is is, is not the same as uh, as cancer, or some other diseases that manifest themselves many many years later, but nevertheless, the fact that relatively few cases have been brought so far does not reassure me. Um, I also fundamentally in accord with Adam's points, uh, it is very difficult to figure out whatever standards you're supposed to follow. Um, in, in part, there is a tension among different standards, which Adam mentioned, but also in part because those standards don't translate well into specific practices, which is why uh, sort of my only foray in the subject and the op-ed I've written with uh, uh, former uh, Judge Lettig, uh, we're suggesting that it would be actually good to promulgate the standards, but the problem is I perhaps don't have much of an optimism that those standards would be promulgated uh, quickly or uh, avoid all in the foreseeable future. And therefore, I think it would have been reasonable to have a period of immunity uh, to enable the promulgation of those standards. I would 
challenge some of you who may have read, for example, the CDC, you know, let's say ambiguous, amorphous, verbose, <laughs> whatever adjectives you want to use, standards, how exactly you translate them into uh, the best practices for the, you know, uh, for a food store, or for a restaurant, or for a hair cuttery. Um, and if you do not know what standard you're supposed to comply with, the liability cannot possibly, the risk of, of liability cannot possibly lead you to, uh, uh, to, to adoption of any particularly sound practices. It just, there's, there's just additional risk that you face as, as a business. Um, I would also say that, uh, from a standpoint, again, of litigation risks and how it's all going to pan out, um, it, it's not particularly interesting to me that uh, a lot of lawsuits would fail. Some of them would succeed. In any case, uh, the cost, the transaction costs of, of bringing these types of lawsuits is very low. You essentially can have cookie cutter complaints. And those of us who actually uh, uh, litigated these types of cases see it all the time. Uh, you impose considerable burdens on businesses in, in defending themselves. Um, you, in all likelihood, are going to survive, particularly if you do a little venue selection. Um, there, as we all know, there are some jurisdictions where uh, bringing these types of lawsuits, and, uh, and particularly class action lawsuits, uh, is, is advantageous. So if you survive the uh, motion to dismiss, uh, in essence, uh, you, you prompt uh, some businesses to settle instead of fighting. So I, I see it very briefly as uh, as a risk that does not serve any useful purpose uh, in a situation where it's not clear what the standards are. And I'm not a big fan, just like Adam, of trying to change the liability standard, as I mentioned in, in, in our Wall Street Journal piece, because in, in a situation where it's not clear what is reckless, Versus what is negligent or what is willful for that matter, they're just labels. Again, it, it's hard to understand what kind of behavior qualifies under those doctrinal uh, rubrics. Uh, I, I am quite, quite unhappy about the, the, the situation. And again, because I do not see any pragmatically uh, any regulations or uh, legislation being uh, being enacted in the foreseeable future. Uh, my view would be that uh, you need to have industries try to promulgate regulations for themselves, but then the question becomes how are they to be adopted. And the, the problem you have, again, is even if, for, for example, let's say the restaurant industry came in and uh, developed something in the space in the next several months and took it to OSHA, even if OSHA promulgated this uh, uh, regulation and would be much more granular, much more manageable than something that CDC uh, is doing in this space, uh, unless you change the existing statutory law, which basically gives you safe harbor if you're complying with those standards, uh, you're still going to have to go to a jury uh, to extend your survival motion practice and convince them that that was enough. Thank you. Thank you, David. <clears throat> um, we're going to turn this over to uh, hear a little bit more from the panelists for a few minutes. But before we do that, I'll remind you again, you can chat your questions to Aaron Murphy or host on WebEx, or you can email ccjca at gmu.edu. Uh, let's um, uh, start with um, uh, Tim, do you have any, uh, uh, Professor Linton, do you have any questions or uh, uh, comments on what you've heard from the other panelists. Yeah, I just want to briefly respond to one thing that Adam said and one thing that David said. Um, I, I'm really in agreement with Adam's view that we have two things that are important here. One is there's a tremendous need for ex-ante certainty when businesses reopen to know what's expected of them. And secondly, that the kind of cost-benefit analysis, the balancing between economic relief and public safety that we need to do needs to be apolitical. It needs to be based on our best guesses to how to optimize these two concerns long-term. They're ultimately both economic concerns, of course. And I would argue, actually, that if what you're looking for is clear ex-ante standards that are an apolitical balancing that seek optimal solutions for optimal levels of safety, then the best way to do that is tort and insurance. The way that most people do this is they follow the instructions of their insurance underwriters for their corporate general liability 
And um, the best example of this I know is in the food safety industry where um, litigation is relatively rare, where public regulation is relatively unsuccessful, and where most of the health and safety optimization is being done through private supply chain management. And so I hesitate to preach uh, private ordering at George Mason University, but I would argue that what we're talking about here is plaintiff's attorneys, what we're talking about is insurance underwriters who are really driving this health and safety system. And they're doing it not based on political considerations, but based on the bottom line for how to optimize their losses. The one other thing I would mention is what David suggested, which is that um, this is really a tort, a mass tort waiting to happen. I don't think a litigation perspective is that helpful here. I would completely agree with him that if you were to focus in on any given case in any area of health and safety, litigation has enormous transaction costs. It's very wasteful. There is some frivolous motion practice going on for sure, but that's not the way that most industries run. Most industries have a handful of those kinds of lawsuits and then an enormous amount of private activity among insurers who are making sure that those sorts of lawsuits don't happen. And again, I would point towards the way the, the food industry works around foodborne illness and outbreaks, which I think is a better analogous, uh, analogy here than um, mass torts like asbestos. And the last thing I would say is, is that um, if you're worried, as uh, David rightly is, that the legislative and the regulatory process is too long uh, and that we'll have to wait around a long time and that we can't wait for judges to make these decisions either, I think that's a perfect argument for why it is that we need the exposure in order to trigger liability concerns among underwriters, which are really the heavy lifters here. This isn't a matter of what a judge says. This is a matter of what an underwriter predicts a judge is going to do. And the judge may take two years to reach that decision, but the underwriters thought about it six weeks ago. Other thoughts from the panelists? Other thoughts from the panelists? Well, I would I would just say that uh, I, I hope my uh, my pessimism uh, is not going to be justified, but it would be passing strange to me uh, if in, in this situation we're not going to see uh, a considerable wave of litigation again taken into account. Of course, we're not talking about chronic conditions, but to the extent that you're going to have uh, people who, for example, perished. Uh, we already over 100,000 people. Perhaps there are some disagreements about whether the comorbidity precipitated this versus the, the true COVID being the, the true cause of, uh, of death. Uh, I would be amazed if we did not see some uh, litigation again in the fullness of time. Uh, that is going to be wasteful. And really, particularly because <laughs> you think about it for a second. Uh, at the time those lawsuits uh, are going to come, uh, my hope is we'll be beyond this pandemic. We're going to have, uh, you know, better treatments. We're going to have vaccine. So uh, unless you do time travel, this litigation is going to instill uh, better practices on the part of any business. So in, in some respects, this is even more wasteful from that perspective than litigation over hazards that sort of occur with some frequency. So, but again, I perhaps the the, the plaintiff lawyer bar, not my favorite members of my profession, would uh, demonstrate remarkable restraint. It would not happen. I have just a couple of quick reactions. Um, at the very beginning of, da of uh, David's uh, remarks, he said he was a little daunted going after two professors. I know for a fact that's not true. My friend is never daunted by anything. <laughs> I, I um, on a more substantive note, I do want to. Um, I agree with 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 much of what uh, Professor Litton said, especially that point about the insurers. They're incredibly important, and they are sort of the shadow regulators in in this context. And I think it's very important that as we talk about these things, we know that these are signals not just for employers, uh, employees, and customers, but they're also signals for the insurance companies that will be effectively, um, in many ways, regulators in the first instance. I want to quibble with one point of of agreement. That might not be agreement, actually, um, that, that Professor Litton pointed out on this question about the, the legislature or, or the lawmaker in any event um, needing to, to balance these priorities. Uh, he referred to it as, as apolitical. Political means of different things to different people. I might not totally agree with that, though, because I don't see it actually as totally apolitical. I think inevitably there's going to be value judgments at issue, value judgments about who should bear risk in the first instance it's not just questions of, opt of, of economic optimality. 
I think ultimately there are value judgments over who we ought to expect to do things in the first instance on, on some matters, whether it's uh, customers or employees assuming more risk or employers assuming more risk. I don't think ultimately that can be reduced to just sort of economic values or, or public health values translated into economic values. I think ultimately there are, there are sort of political value judgments, and I mean politics in the best sense of trying to reconcile um, otherwise incommensurable value judgments. And, and I don't want to suggest then that those things can be removed from this. They can't. I just hope that those balances are struck, those compromises are made, those decisions are made in ways that, 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 that tend towards um, uh, moderation. So if I could just um, kind of add one thing in, uh, I find myself in the embarrassing position of being a guest at George Mason University, arguing that um, this is an issue that probably ought to be decided on the basis of economic uh, risk optimization uh, in the face of relatively articulate um, suggestions that there's a lot more going on here than optimizing health and safety and economic welfare. Uh, there are important principles at stake that may actually contradict the need for um, sensible reopening from an economic perspective and trying to optimize how much safety is the right amount of safety. Uh, so I'll, uh, you know, bite the bullet or drink the Kool-Aid. I'm going to basically argue that um, this is essentially a public health problem, not just the COVID-19 transmission, but people being out of work is an economic problem. And that um, just as economic relief is important consideration, so too is public health. These things need to be balanced. I think it's um, hard to balance. We don't have enough data to do it in any great uh, manner of precision. But the fact is, is that that's the way risk and insurance and risk management in general works. It basically takes the available information, makes the best guess. Um, the suggestion seems to be that uh, in addition to that, we ought to figure out how people feel sort of abstractly about liberty or being you know, locked up at home or not being able to go out to a, a bar. Um, that's a plausible view, but it's one that seems to fly in the face of a more sort of steely-eyed or technocratic view about trying to optimize risk. David, you're muted. Aaron, can you unmute? Yeah, just, just one, one quick point. My concern, by the way, is that precisely because of the difficulty of translating the broad guidelines that we see now and we'll, we'll see again in the future, uh, it almost becomes strict liability. And uh, I guess uh, uh, to that extent, I disagree with uh, with Timothy. Uh, look, it's the way plaintiff lawyers would argue, cut dry if you can you know, demonstrate that you have representing somebody who got very sick, uh, COVID-19 or sadly perished, uh, and you attribute it to a particular business destination, um, how do you defend yourself? You say, well, I, uh, I had everybody wear masks, okay, but you take temperature of everybody who walks the doors, your customers, e easier to do it with employees, I guess, but even if you did, um, okay, because we know there are a number of asymptomatic people, you actually go to the trouble of administering tests and to everybody. The point is, there would always be arguments that you could do more. And the notion that uh, you, you're basically going to administer tests to all your um, sort of ongoing rolling basis to your employee, because somebody is COVID negative today does not mean he would not be positive tomorrow. So unless we're going to live in the world where businesses administer most tests to every employee and every customer, uh, I would not be terribly optimistic that you would be able to throw it on motion practice or even necessarily prevail when you go to a jury. Because again, uh, public sympathies are also always going to lie with the victims. And how the heck do you prove a negative? Um, so I, again, I think in many respects, this is, uh, this is a huge problem. I mean, I don't want to test my case on optimism or pessimism. I mean, I, all I know is the data. The data suggests that of the you know, 2,100 cases that have been filed uh, since this broke out, uh, only about nine lawyers have found business models to bring claims. It's possible in six months we'll see a flood, and I'm happy to talk about what that flood means, but um, it seems to be sort of rank speculation. I'm not sure we should be making uh, decisions based on even more speculation than we already have to deal with now. There don't seem to be a flood of cases now in tort. I'm not sure why we would expect them. And if you want to parallel, there are 48 million people every year who suffer acute gastroenteritis from 
food poisoning, and it generates a very small handful of tort claims every year. Causation is too hard to prove, and there's no business model for plaintiff's attorneys. They can go in and argue anything they want, but if they can't collect, they don't bring the case. So I'd like to turn to audience questions in one minute, but before we do that, um, can each of you take about 30 seconds to just tell the audience what's unique about tort liability during COVID-19 versus tort liability issues that we're debating every day outside of COVID-19? In other words, is there something special or, or unique that we're addressing today with COVID-19 that we would not have been addressing before this about the need for changes in, in tort law? And what makes it special? What makes it unique? If you could each take 30 seconds and then we'll turn to the audience question. I'll jump in. Um, I think what makes this unique is really the combination of the, of the surprise outbreak and the necessary governmental response. It's the fact that we're trying to reboot economic activity after a three month sort of forced coma, um, a coma that I think was justified, but trying to resettle expectations after that radical economic dislocation is the real challenge here. I would say that what's unique is the utter lack of understanding, uh, even after months of, of research uh, as to the precise transmission mechanisms, uh, because there are instances, I don't think any doctor would disagree, but instances you get exposed and reasonably close proximity to somebody who is COVID-19 positive, and you do not get sick, and in other circumstances, uh, you do get sick. So the transmission mechanisms are not well understood. How to deal with, how to mitigate that risk is not well understood. Um, and I think that's what makes it uh, makes it unique. Yeah, I would argue that this is not unique. If the two things that have been mentioned so far are uncertainty, that this risk is highly uncertain, and the causal transmission chains are very complex and difficult to understand, and our understanding is just beginning to emerge, um, and that we have big government involvement here that requires a certain amount of stewardship or, um, you know, uh, care. I would say that um, we far overestimate how much certainty there is in risk regulation every day. Um, toxic exposures, foodborne illness, we're talking about problems of enormous national scope. They have incredible uncertainty. The science is far short of the regulations that are rolled out every day by the government. Um, and furthermore, the government is deeply involved and has dedicated huge amounts of resources to these areas through the EPA and the FDA, just to name one of dozens of federal agencies. The most powerful way to regulate a lot of health and safety when uncertainty is very high and government seems to be, have, be deeply invested, even though it seems to be far ahead of the science, is often through private ordering. And the best, most effective way to do that is through liability exposure, risk management inside of industries, supply chain management, and insurance underwriting. And that combination provides usually cutting edge use of whatever information is available and a certain expertise in facing high levels of uncertainty. The insurance industry regulates risks that it has no reliable um, data for in terms of uh, figuring out how to monetize that risk, but they do their best with the science that's available and they ballpark guesses and they try and increase the best practices that industry can provide them with. And industry has an incentive to follow those things because of the exposure. I don't think this is any different. It's a big problem, but we have other nationwide problems that involve high levels of complexity, things we don't understand, uncertainty, and a lot of government money at stake that needs to be stewarded. And the, the, and the, the tort liability system and insurance underwriting is an essential feature of making that larger system work. Thank you all. Let's turn to the audience questions. The first comes from Catherine Sharkey. Uh, and this is directed to Tim, but uh, I think it's something which each of you might uh, chime in on. Do you think business waivers of liability would hold up in court? My view of this is, is that uh, in order for the waiver to be enforceable in most states, the person who signs it has to have knowledge of the risk. They have to voluntarily sign it. It has to not be against public policy. I think in most jurisdictions, you would find that if a uh, a ballpark or a restaurant or a bar asks you to sign a waiver of liability, it's probably enforceable. My guess is that if all of the local supermarkets in your jurisdiction ask you to sign a waiver, it's probably not enforceable. And my guess is if we take a middle case like the local health club, places like New Jersey, it's probably enforceable and elsewhere it's probably not. So my rule of thumb would essentially be that um, if it's a business that you really have to patronize in order to really survive or make it, the waiver is probably not liability and you should go ahead and sign it, not enforceable. Um, you should go ahead and sign it because it probably won't be held up in court. But if it's something that you don't need to do, 
and you sign the waiver, you've probably signed your rights away. I would defer to, to his understanding of the law, especially given how varied it is from state to state. But what he just described, how can you as a customer, how can we ask people to make that judgment as they're walking into their grocery store to try to do like a risk calculus about what they're signing the rights away? Who, who would sign a, a waiver that broad thinking, well, maybe I won't get stuck anyway. The magnitude of these decisions is immense. And, and I pity both the customers and the, the, the companies for having to, to make these snap decisions without real binding guidance from the government. So in the name of- A related question, if I could just each respond to it as well. And David, I want you to answer that question, but also this, this related question that came in from the audience. Uh, does a waiver protect anyone from a gross negligence standard? Um, not an expert in state law, I confess. I'm, I'm more of a federal litigator, but I would imagine that in most states, uh, it would not. So all, all that the waivers would do would lead to uh, creative pleading. It would be accusing somebody uh, of willful or, or reckless behavior, and uh, it, would, it would not hold up. Um, I, think I, if I think if we're worried about uncertainty and uh, litigation over the waivers, then maybe the proper solution is to have federal legislation making all waivers unenforceable. Great. Next question comes from uh, Harvey Perlman from the University of Nebraska College of Law asking, how are insurers going to help optimize safety precautions when uh, there are, they are more likely to rely on their virus exclusions? Uh, well, I'll take a first stab. The extent to which uh, they are relying on their virus exclusions and they believe them to be um, enforceable uh, they probably won't be doing a very good job of trying to figure out underwriting guidelines that are likely to optimize risk. Um, one of the ways that we might think about some sort of federal intervention is to clarify uh, coverage in these situations. Um, clarification, I think, will take care of this in the market because if there are, in fact, um, exclusions for viruses that are upheld in this circumstance, then you can be sure that underwriters eventually will come in to fill the market vacuum and start to provide coverage to riders for COVID-19 transmission Pricing those policies is going to be difficult. They're dealing with the same uncertainty that public health officials are dealing with. The difference is, is that public health officials are bureaucrats and underwriters have a business model for figuring out their best guess at how to price these things. If they get it horribly wrong, there are secondary insurance markets that usually come in to save the day. Um, and reinsurance uh, basically is the way that the insurance industry deals with the fact that it essentially runs on ballpark guesses when risks are new and emerging like we're seeing now. I. I... I agree uh, with Timothy that reinsurance certainly does allow you to uh, to spread the risks wider. But I, mean, I I would not be reassured, no matter if I uh, an insurance company, by whatever policy exclusions exist. There are plenty of examples of, of, of litigation arguing that in fact uh, those waivers uh, are, are not uh, not waivers. That those exclusions are not. Uh, uh, I'm able to give you one example, which is actually COVID-19 related. Virtually all insurance policies have uh, exclusions for business interruptions caused by certain types of events. Uh, and uh, I've, I've noticed quite a, quite a bit of uh, at least uh, intellectual speculation by various plaintiff law firms organizing not as exalted as this uh, webinar, but webinars actually talking about how you can work around those, uh, those exclusions. So uh, it's in our legal system, unfortunately, you know, we're gonna make a truistic observation. It's very hard to come up with a waiver or an exclusion or anything in writing for that matter that's going to reliably and assuredly stick uh, and be enforced in litigation. A related question comes from Max Helveston uh, from DePaul College of Law asking regarding private ordering and insurance underwriters. My concerns with looking to private ordering solutions are a complete lack of experience and expertise in the commercial liability insurance sphere for pandemic related liabilities. And different insurers may generate different requirements leading to even more widespread confusion and concern among con uh, consumers. Uh, can you address whether or not insurance companies have the expertise and whether or not there would be uniformity uh, in insurance uh, private ordering that would help solve this problem, or whether or not those are real concerns uh, that make it less likely to be successful. I 
have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to respond briefly. Um, look, lack of expertise and uh, lack of uniformity are hardly um, exclusively hallmarks of private ordering in the insurance markets. Uh, we're not exactly seeing a lot of expertise uh, or um, uniformity among state public health officials or local public health officials grappling with this problem. It's not as if there's some body somewhere of people who really know the answer to this. We just need to make sure we tap into the institution in which they work and rely on that institution. We're talking about basically a network of experts uh, whose knowledge is emerging around a complex and highly uncertain risk. They're talking to each other. They talk to each other in industry technical committees and the fresh produce industry when they worry about transmission through food. They talk to each other in notes and comments. They talk to each other through lobbying meetings. They talk to each other through webinars. And they work in different kinds of institutions. My argument is that we need the assistance of all of the different institutions in this mix, and that insurance basically is largely a consumer of this expertise. There's not uniformity because they're doing their best to optimize and people's ballpark guesses are different, but I'm not exactly sure that they're worse than the ballpark guesses of public officials. And furthermore, there's one big important difference, which is, is that insurance has a business model for trying to get this right. And it's not exactly sure that government bureaucrats always do have such a good business model for getting this right. Um, and the public is relying on people whose primary concern is to try and optimize the fallout from the economic costs of this and the public health risk, not people who have other things on their mind or who are looking to dodge blame or you know pass the buck. And so I would say that, sure, insurance has a lack of expertise and lack of uniformity. That's never stopped underwriters in any market that I've ever studied. And furthermore, we're probably likely to see them work pretty hard on the problem and incrementally improve over time. We've already seen uh, the CEO of Lloyd's of London tell the Financial Times uh, over a month ago, that this could be the most expensive, uh, COVID-19 could be the most expensive disaster in the history of reinsurance. Um, and I think it's hard to believe that the reinsurers for all their working insurance companies won't themselves at some point turn to government for help in all this. I mean, I'm all for private ordering. I, I, I bring my Hayek wherever I go, especially my home office. I can say that right now, what we're dealing with is an economic crisis and the aftermath of not just the public health emergency, but the government response to that. And again, the forced shutdown, which I thought was, I think was prudent of, of economic activity was a radical dislocation. I don't think it's fair or even appropriate to say in the aftermath of that, okay, we'll let private ordering sort this out. I think it will in the long run, but the challenge is the short run. Again, for me, the focus is how do we get customers, employees, and companies feeling comfortable opening their doors right now when we face extreme economic hardship and personal hardship. And so, listen, uh, Professor Leighton feels uncomfortable uh, adopting sort of private ordering on a George Mason call. Think of how I feel as the, as the director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State saying we need a regulatory solution right now. But I think this is one of those times that calls for it again, just with the focus on short-term transitional certainty. I think we need some guidance from the federal government. I, I don't mean guidance documents. I mean legislative guidance that actually creates some modicum of certainty around which private entities can begin to order themselves again quickly. So I guess I would, I would, I would uh, disagree with the idea that our primary concern here is making sure that we find a reliable way for business to open. It's not clear to me from where I sit that we want all businesses to reopen. Right. Oh, we I want those businesses to reopen whose reopening serves the public interest in terms of public health and economic recovery. And the fact is, is that I get a lot of you know emails from places that I belong, like my health club, that wanted to swing the doors open, you know, five weeks ago without any uh, concern for you know basic protections, and they backed off because their customers said, you know, we're not ready to come back. So they sat down for five weeks. They put together a plan. They did some risk analysis. My guess is now it's a good time for them to think about opening on a limited basis. Universities suffer from this enormously, and those, those are changing all the time. I agree with you. There's terrible uncertainty. People have to grapple with this. It may be the case that insurance needs some sort of guarantee or backing from the government. I'm not opposed to government intervention or government regulation, but I don't want to strip us of the important tool of liability uh, exposure and the underwriting markets that help to fuel that and provide a decentralized message that goes out to everybody. Everybody who runs a business has insurance for corporate general liability. Not everybody runs a business. In fact, most people run businesses. In fact, the overwhelming majority of people who run businesses never get a visit from a government inspector before ex-ante or ex-post when a problem occurs. They don't inter 
act with the government except to pay a tax bill. If we want to touch people, we got to touch people through contact points that exist, and that network is the tort insurance network. Yeah. And I do, okay. I don't, I, I do yeah. agree. The point is not opening everything up. I, I don't mean to state that broadly. I just mean open things up as quickly as is prudent. I mean, just add one point. I don't disagree with uh, Timothy about uh, the way in which insurance markets work. My fear, frankly, however, that precisely given the existing uncertainties, the kind of regime, de facto regulatory regime that would be imposed by the insurance companies is, is basically going to pivot off. It shall not be as used to do. So they're going to have for quite a long time, uh, whether or not it, it, it based upon scientific merit, uh, medical merit, we're going to have restaurants, barbershops, food stores, and all sorts of service establishments operating at less than optimal capacity. And this is not just a question of economic cost versus human lives. I think both of us, uh, I spent a fair amount of my time in government dealing with regulatory issues. And I can assure you there's an enormous amount of research that suggests huge consequences from uh, the decrease in economic activity. Uh, that it's just every, in many respects, more tangible than some of the predictions uh, associated with, with COVID. So we, we, I mean, to say, yes, we, we should open businesses when it's prudent and we should operate them in a prudent fashion. But if your baseline is operate them in less than effective manner based upon the, their prior performance, that is a huge economic headwind. I mean, I guess I would say if we're trying to figure out who's ballpark guest to take on whether or not we have too much caution or not enough caution, um, I put my money on a constellation of different actors that includes uh, the insurance industry and doesn't exclude them by basically immunity of um, you know li from liability exposure. I think what you do when you pass an immunity bill, it's not about the lawyers or the plaintiff's attorneys. You take out or you remove from the system a ballpark guessing about what we ought to be doing next. And I agree with you, economic dislocation may be worse than COVID in the end. You're taking away an important instrument. That instrument happens to be a private ordering instrument, and that instrument is private insurance markets. And I just don't understand why it is you would want to strip us of an important um, mechanism that I don't think has any disadvantages in terms of the level of uncertainty or uniformity or predictability that it provides to the reopening of businesses across the country. My just a couple minutes left. Oh, David, go ahead. No, for the record, my suggestion has not been to provide unlimited immunity, is to provide a short window of immunity, incentivizing, talking about private ordering, I would like to incentivize every industry to develop within a short of a time period. For example, you've got a six-month immunity window with a caveat that um, continue to enjoy some predictability and good risk management, you would need to develop, if you are uh, an association of restaurants, the best practices, submit them uh, to appropriate federal regulators, most likely OSHA, and comply with it. I think that would have a virtue, actually, of having probably the most intelligent, uh, uh, the most economically intelligent, medically intelligent uh, set of standards. So I, I never suggested that there should be indefinite immunity. We have time for just one last question, and uh, let's turn to a law student for this. So uh, a rising 2L at George Mason Law School uh, has, has asked uh, Jace Panabianco, uh, I hope I'm getting the name right, is it possible that the number of tort complaints for wrongful deaths are artificially low? It would only take a single successful suit widely reported on for the proverbial floodgate of frivolous suits to open. The number could also be artificially diminished by layman perception of court closures, uh, and, and therefore I assume not filing suits. Um, is, is there a chance that, that a single suit could start a floodgate? Um, is there a real risk here, in other words? So Professor Litton started out uh, our, our conversation today saying that maybe the risk is not very high of, a, a, uh, of significant tort liability here. Why should we fear uh, the, the risk or should we fear the risk of increased tort uh, suits as a result of COVID-19? And where do we look for data in relation to that, which is uh, the theme of questions uh, that have come up? I would suggest I'll, that I'll ask each panelist to, to um, answer 
that question and also wrap in some, some of your closing thoughts as we close out the, the discussion. Yeah, I would, I would suggest that um, the idea of a proverbial floodgate of litigation, the key word there is proverbial. This is a concept that is put forward as a kind of policy concept. What it is, is it's a narrative. And um, I'm perfectly willing to look at any given case study and look at a number of you know, frivolous lawsuits to find out whether or not people have been sanctioned for bringing bad faith lawsuits or whether or not they've been bringing claims that really have a low probability of winning, uh, depending on how you define what frivolous is. But I don't see any evidence here that there have been a lot of plaintiff's attorneys who put together a business model to bring these sorts of claims. The only data I've been able to find on the net suggests that there's a very tiny, tiny number of claims. Out of 2,000 claims, more than 2,000 claims that have been filed, there are less than nine that seem to be tort-related for personal injury. Um, if one of them succeeds, that shows that actually there's a problem out there and there'll be a business model. There won't just be a business model for plaintiff's attorney who have similar facts. More importantly, there'll be a business model for underwriting and insurance companies who will now have a reason to fill that market niche. Um, I don't think that just because a plaintiff wins a successful suit, that somehow lots of frivolous suits come out of the woodwork. That seems to me, again, sort of a proverbial problem, not a real world problem. Um, I'd need to see some evidence before I thought that there was a real problem going on now that we were, you know, there was a dam waiting to burst. That seems to me the kind of rhetoric that's being used to bootstrap this problem, that if you create enough fear, then you will need immunity because people won't open without it. Uh, a couple of points. And uh, again, I start from the proposition that there's a tremendous number of frivolous lawsuits uh, in, already in, in, in existence. And I've not seen, frankly, in my legal practice, any instances where somebody was sanctioned for bringing an, an essentially frivolous uh, tort lawsuit uh, of, of this kind. You, 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 and from a standpoint, again, the cost of bringing such lawsuits are quite low. You basically write a complaint, there are lots of uh, piggyback complaints, and you just sort of throw the ball aside, survive motion practice, subject businesses to expensive discovery, and, and you're going to have some settlements. Uh, so, uh, but, but even if it does not take place, I'm sure that uh, we all can agree here with the very specter, the very possibility of these types of lawsuits is going to inhibit what otherwise we would consider prudent and efficient uh, approach to reopening businesses, but not just reopening them, but operating them e efficiently. And, and efficiently, of course, means different things for different businesses, but I mean, we can we can accept the notion that a, a given space that allows typically, when you use a restaurant as an example, ten tables, uh, in order to um, you know make a go at it, would not do very well with insurance companies saying we can only have five because there is something magical about not doing things. And I'm repeating myself the way you used to do it before because that's kind of a easiest standard to come up with. You you can accommodate ten tables. We want you to do five whether it makes any scientific sense or not. And I'll just say very quickly, um, before I was here in the ivory tower, I, I did have a, you know, more than a little time in private practice. And what really struck me about this issue when it first started arising in April, so I was trying to put myself in my old shoes or in David's shoes and try to think about how I would have actually advised real world clients operating real world businesses in the haze of uncertainty through April and May. And I, I, I think Timothy, uh, Professor Leighton may well prove correct in the long run, there won't be a problem here. Um, I think we're still in the short run. Maybe by the end of the summer, we won't. People will have given up on social distancing and they will have just sort of assumed the risk themselves or assumed the risk of losing negligence lawsuits in the future. I don't know. Um, but I still think it's soon enough that it's not too late for the government to, to offer some useful binding guidance to help uh, calibrate these, this mix of, of economic and, and just basic value judgments that I think needs to be calibrated. Thanks again to the LEC for doing this. Thanks to all the panelists for being part of this presentation. Thank you to the audience for uh, participating as well. I uh, wish we could have gotten to all the questions. There were a lot in the queue that we that we didn't. This is obviously a, an issue that is uh, textured and rich with uh, a number of areas of, of concern that the com conversation will continue beyond uh, this, this webinar, of course. Uh, as you look to future events, please uh, look at masonlec.org uh, or to um, administrativestate.gmu.edu, uh, uh, the law, uh, the web pages for the Law and Economics Center and the C. Boyden Gray uh, Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'd like to thank 
the Seaboard and Gray Center for uh, being being co-sponsor on this with the LEC. And again, thank you to all of you. I, I look forward to continuing this conversation with both the panelists and the rest of the audience as uh, the days ahead will certainly bring challenges for the issue of tort liability for businesses during COVID-19. Thanks again, everyone. Mm -hmm.